calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to episode 19 of Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 49, Diurnia System, 2372, June 5th. We got underway for Dre just before noon. I'd made the offer to paint staterooms and berthing areas to all the crew, but nobody took me up on it. I left the offer open and allocated funds to an accounting line on the ledger. The co-op had done well, and they were beginning to get their processes down. I noted that they had already replaced the goods I'd bought from them. Jen had sent one note to me the morning we got underway. It read simply, I'm sorry. Part of me wanted to know which part of it she was sorry for. The little animal part of me kept feeling betrayed, but there was a more rational part, perhaps a colder part. That wouldn't let me ignore the reality that my long absences and short, infrequent returns were as much a factor as anything. She was always playing second fiddle to the ship, and as much as the little animal kept screaming his rage, I had to admit to myself that we really had no life together, and never had. We had a contract that should have been dissolved long ago. I sent back a reply. Me too. As the tug pushed us out toward the deep dark, I felt the ache begin to subside. If there was no compass pointing back to Diurnia anymore, there was also no string pulling harder with each day. I had always believed that when the lock closed, my connection to Diurnia and the people there was severed. For Staniers, I'd been very successful in compartmentalizing, but for the first time in a long time, there was no compartment, and I finally realized just how wrong I'd been. Any word on pirate activity in the area, Mr. Paul? He seemed a bit startled by the question, and I realized we'd been riding along in near silence since Mr. Wyatt had brought us our lunches at noon. Not in his quadrant, Skipper. We should be clear to the jump point. Excellent news, Mr. Paul. Thank you. You're welcome, Skipper. I glanced at Miss Thomas. I know she saw me look, but she studiously kept her focus on the console in front of her. I settled back in my chair and felt the ship beneath me. It felt good. Around 1610, the tug gave us our final boost and turned us loose to coast to the safety limit where we'd be able to raise the sails. I looked up at the drop-down repeater and had to admire Mr. Paul's elegant plotting. We'd been working on the wind flow models ever since Jet. It was fairly well established that the winds above and below the plane of the ecliptic were more laminar, less disturbed by the passage of the system's planets, asteroids, and other assorted paraphernalia. 
Most astrogators tended to ignore that as being an insignificant difference at the scales we operated on. I wasn't so sure myself, and Mr. Paul and I had agreed to try sailing a little higher and picking courses that were diametrically opposed to the system's center of mass to try to gain the shortest route to the Burleson limit as we could. A day or two made a big difference in our operating expenses, and if we could carve off two or three on each trip, it would mean better profits over the long haul. I had to marvel over how much the technology had improved just since my days on the Lois. New field integrity work back in the 60s meant we could have sails that were substantially larger now and sail correspondingly faster. The Agamemnon was actually rated at two metric kilotons higher than the lowest, but we could make the run out to the Burleson limit in a week or so faster. Of course, being a bulk hauler, the tear mass on the hull was a third of that of the Lois's, so some part of that gain was inherent in the ship itself. Still, it startled me to realize I'd been at it long enough to actually recognize improvements. Coming up on the safety limit, Captain. Thank you, Ms. Thomas, if you'd notify the chief engineer. It's done, Captain. By 1730, we were well underway with all sails up and drawing nicely. I gave the command to secure from navigation stations. First section would have the watch for a few ticks, which gave Mr. Paul and Mr. Ricks a chance to freshen up before they took it for the evening. Mr. Hill and I would have the evening off to rest up before taking the mid-watch. We were back on the merry-go-round again. Dinner was a jovial affair, with Mr. Wyatt going all out to put on a feast of roast fowl, curried potatoes, and a delightful goulash of mixed vegetables. He'd been working on his soup stocks, and the practice showed in a delicate opening broth, laced with a collection of savories and textures. For dessert, he produced a fresh fruit pie stuffed with apples, pears, and raisins. The crew set to with a will and good humor. If I seemed a little more subdued than normal, they were gracious enough to grant me the space. After helping to clean up after, I begged off and headed to my cabin, claiming the need to rest as an excuse. Truthfully, I did need to rest. The stay at Diurnia had drained me, but I was just as conscious that my emotional state was bleeding over into the crew, and I needed to minimize that to whatever degree I could. As always, when underway, the port across the bow drew me. In the subdued lighting, the dark red around the open expanse of armor glass set off the true black of the deep dark ahead of us. The paler bulkheads on either side seemed to recede in my peripheral vision, leaving only the bright sparkles of distant suns scattered across the view. I found myself smiling. Not a big smile, but a smile. I crossed to the desk and switched on the lamp there rather than turning on the overheads. There was enough light to see what I needed to see and added some warmth. I sat for a moment and ran through the incoming message traffic and scanned the logs briefly. I'd give them more attention during the mid-watch, but I took a moment to see if there were anything urgent, disposing of the routine matters almost as fast as I could read them, marking the more complex for later. There really wasn't that much that needed my immediate attention, and I sat back in my chair, surveying my small domain. The master's license was on the bulkhead above my desk, and it looked quite fitting there. The large hanging beside the door was a perfect foil to the open port behind me, and I'd noticed that the room seemed quieter when I hadn't actually noticed the way sound had echoed until the addition of the tapestry had damped it. I swiveled the desk chair around so that I could look out at the stars once more. The light behind me reflected on the armor glass, and I could see my own image and silhouette reflected faintly back at me, a dark outline looking out in the deep dark. I took a deep breath and let it out slowly, sitting there and listening to the ship around me, listening to my heartbeats, listening to the air in the vents and the air in my lungs. 
After a few ticks, I swiveled back to shut off the light and let my bunk call me. The merry-go-round continued spinning, and I needed to be ready for my next pass at the brass ring. We were two days out from Diurnia when I finally got around to updating the contest standings between Mr. Hill and Mr. Wyatt. In gross terms, Mr. Wyatt was ahead of Mr. Hill by close to a kilocred. That sounded like a lot, but the grand totals were in the 250 kilocred range, so the difference really only represented a fraction of a percent. I was amused to note that I was actually in the lead with a total almost 15 kilocreds higher. I scrolled back through the transactions and traced it to a healthy variance on that first can from Diurnia to Welliver. It had looked like a relatively minor cargo, but we delivered it ahead of schedule and were able to capitalize on an early delivery bonus. It had been luck more than planning, but I made a mental note to share that finding with my cargo pickers. In running the numbers, I noted that the last three runs had yielded returns almost an order of magnitude higher than normal. The resulting shares were substantial, and having their work recognized in a tangible way like that was probably one reason the terrible trio didn't get into any trouble at all while we were in Diurnia. I thought they were really beginning to come to grips with the reality that they actually did have a stake in how things went. Of course, in fairness to them, the dust-up on Jet was not really their fault either. I finished updating the figures just a few ticks before Mr. Paul was due to relieve the watch at noon. The official count has you only a kilocred behind, Mr. Hill. That's not bad, Skipper. I think I can make it up on this run to Dre. I looked at the manifest again and nodded slowly. I think you may be right, Mr. Hill. How will you feel about it if you lose? He grinned over at me. You have so little faith in me, Skipper. No, Mr. Hill. Actually, I expect you'll win, but I'm also thinking it's going to be as much luck as anything. I shrugged. Your dice roll may go against you. He nodded soberly at that. True enough, Captain. He thought it over for a few ticks. I think I'd like to work with Mr. Wyatt, actually. Really, Mr. Hill? He shrugged and looked into his helm display. He's really an interesting guy. I never realized it before, and he's certainly been picking better cargo since you came aboard, Skipper. He shook his head ruefully. It's like he's a different man. He looked at me out of the corner of his eye. You're not picking for him, are you, Captain? No, Mr. Hill but I don't blame you for asking. He's never picked cans like this before, Skipper. No, Mr. Hill, the absolute truth is he's never picked cans before. He looked over at me. What do you mean he's never picked cans? He thought he was supposed to get the dispatch from DST. He'd call them up and they'd pick the first shipment on the list and off you'd go. So wait, Captain. He turned to look at me. He's never picked a cargo can? I shook my head. No, Mr. Hill. Like so many other things about this ship, he was a victim of a process that he didn't understand. You knew this when we placed the bet, Skipper? That he'd never actually picked a cargo in his own? Yes, Mr. Hill. So you bet that he could outpick me and you had no idea if he could pick a cargo or not? I smiled at him. Yes, Mr. Hill, that's true. I let him consider it for a moment. I did have reason to believe that he had some considerable data management talent that wasn't being used, and I bet on that. Either way, I couldn't lose. How do you figure that, Skipper? Well, I told you at the beginning, Mr. Hill. Whatever happens with the bet, the ship wins by having better profits. I was reasonably certain you'd be an excellent cargo picker. If I was wrong about Mr. Hill, then you'd make up for his shortfalls. I was right about you. I was right about him. The share values on these last three trips have been higher than the previous three Staniers. I shrugged again. I don't call that losing. He thought about that a bit before glancing in my direction. You don't play poker, do you, Captain? I shook my head. No, Mr. Hill. He sighed. Pity. I chuckled, and when Mr. Paul came to relieve the watch, 
gave him the figures to add to the open cargo display. I wanted the rest of the crew to see the standings as we counted down our last two runs. Chapter 50, Diurnia System, 2372, June 22nd. We were about two weeks out of Diurnia when the quarterly ratings exams came around again. I'd briefed Mr. Paul on the duties of a training officer. They weren't that onerous, and he was already handling the systems updates to keep the testing portfolios up to date. I walked him through the procedures and turned the task of administering the exam over to him. Mr. Schubert was working through his advanced maths course and chose not to try for ship handler one again. Mr. Hill was ready for cargoman two, and Mr. Rick surprised me by going for messman, the full share rating in the steward division. Messman, Mr. Ricks. Yes, Skipper. I've been helping out Mr. Wyatt in the galley on my off time, and I kind of like it. It pays the same as able spacer, and it's a day job. No watch standing. That's true, Mr. Ricks. It's not a bad job. He shrugged and smiled. I don't know if anybody would hire me, but you never know. I have to say the idea of not standing watch is really appealing, even if I do have to get up early and peel vegetables. It beats brow watch. I have to grant you that, Mr. Ricks. I smiled at him. You sure you want to go for Messman right out of the blocks? You could try the attendant exam. No, Skipper, but thanks for asking. I've been studying for Messman, and it's really not too difficult. Mostly sanitation and food handling regulations on top of the normal ship stuff. He grinned. Besides, if I fail it, I'm not out anything, and I can try again next quarter. If I get it, then I've got a second rating to fall back on. Okay, Mr. Ricks. I just wanted to make sure. Check with Mr. Paul and work out the schedule with him, if you would. Aye, aye, Skipper. I'd arranged with Mr. Paul to use the extra console on the bridge to give the two exams. We had to do a little finagling to get the lineup correct, but it worked out well with Mr. Ricks taking his test during the last stand of morning watch while Mr. Hill and I had the duty, and Mr. Hill taking his exam right after lunch during the afternoon watch while Mr. Ricks and Mr. Paul had the duty. Administering the exam was no burden on the OD, but the key was to make sure the person taking the test wasn't actually supposed to be standing a watch. It worked out, and I was grateful to Mr. Paul for taking on the ancillary duty. They both passed their exams, and I wondered if, perhaps, we might be losing one or more of them to other ships when we got back to Diurnia. With the contest for cargo picking going on, I didn't think we'd lose any of them until the bet was won and lost, but opportunities sometimes knock at the window while you're watching the door. After that, the merry-go-round spun largely unnoticed by anybody aboard. We made a routine jump from Diurnia to Dre on the 28th of June, and ran through a complete round of ship's drills on our way into the well. Every day that passed, I felt better about the way things were going. My Tai Chi practice was going well, and I found myself slipping back into the meditation and motion of the discipline. I also loved the redecorated cabin more each time I returned to it and saw it anew. I only wished that I had either a conversational grouping or pads on the bench in front of the port. What I really found myself craving was a comfy chair. Maybe it was age, maybe it was just too much sitting at the consoles, but I found myself sitting on my bunk with the pillows behind my back more often than not, when I'd really like to be sitting in the main cabin looking out the port. The most comfortable chair on the ship was the captain's chair on the bridge, and I only ever sat on that when we went to navigation stations. It seemed a bit unfair. The trip was uneventful until we picked up the inner markers on the 18th of July. We started getting hourly updates on cargo and economic conditions, and as in most confederated planets, the market in cargoes was exceptionally lively. Competition for them was lively as well. The one-hour delay meant the ships docked had an advantage in terms of snagging the prime cargoes. 
In spite of that, I managed to grab a can of raw silicone heading back to Diurnia, which left Mr. Wyatt and Mr. Hill scrambling to outpick each other and all the tractors already docked at the station. Neither was able to grab a cargo before we got tied up and got into the real-time loop at the orbital, but it was great fun to watch. Frustrating for them, too, no doubt, but they persisted in good humor. We locked down at Dre early in the evening watch on the 22nd. Mr. Hill and Mr. Wyatt closeted themselves in Mr. Wyatt's stateroom and stayed there until nearly 2300. They emerged with smiles and we had our load heading back. Mr. Wyatt had locked on a mid-range priority can of mixed building materials within ticks of its appearance on the boards. Mr. Hill snagged a can of bulk sulfur with a very attractive early delivery bonus. It looked very much like the contest was going to go down to the wire. Breakfast the next morning was well attended, and I didn't get a chance to speak quietly with Mr. Wyatt until we'd finished cleaning up and the others drifted off to sleep, or ashore. You seem pretty pleased with the contest, Avery. I am, Skipper. Mr. Hill is a formidable researcher, and he has great instincts. You may lose this, you know. He grinned. Frankly, Skipper, I hope I do. I must have looked surprised. He smiled wider and gave his head a little shake. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to try to beat him, but dealing with stores isn't that big a deal. I really don't need an apprentice to handle that. We make a very good team picking cargoes, actually, and I suspect that he'd be happy to keep helping just for the fun of it. He gave a little shrug. Besides, if he wins, we all get a hot tub. <laughs> Excellent point, Avery. I hadn't considered that you might want a hot tub more than you needed an apprentice. He chuckled briefly and then looked at me appraisingly. Did you really think I could beat him, Skipper? I looked at him with a raised eyebrow. You mean when I placed the bet? Yes, Captain. He looked a bit uncomfortable. We had a little talk about the bet and how it started. I'm embarrassed to admit that I really had no idea how we picked cargoes. On the Leviathans, it all came out of the central clearinghouse. They were monstrous ships, and lining up the fleet to keep them moving with optimal loads took a team of cargo wranglers at every orbital. I shrugged. That Saltzman operation is also very centralized, Avery. You never worked cargo anywhere else. He shook his head. Landed a berth there right out of the academy, and I stayed until they made chief. They only ever hired family for the chief officer posts there. I had to leave or stay cargo first. How'd you get the Agamemnon? Luck of the draw. I'm not sure what happened to my predecessor. Rumor was he gave up the berth and went to run a warehouse operation planetside on Breakall. I was on the Jeremiah at the time. One of the Salzman cousins had just made first and was ready to move up, so they were happy to have me go. Guess I wasn't quite as ready as I thought. Still, you stayed here in spite of Captain Delman's evaluations. He shrugged again. It was an easy berth, if rather boring. He paused before going on. You bet on me not knowing if I could pick cargoes. Yeah, well, I had no idea if you could pick or not. In those first few days aboard, things were all up in the air for all of us. I don't know why Captain Delman ran the ship the way he did, and I'm not even going to try to second-guess him. I had some very specific ideas about it when I came aboard, and I just went about trying to get everything lined up to accomplish them. He looked at me curiously. What was your main objective, Skipper? Improve the ship's reputation. I shook my head. You can't improve reputation by focusing on reputation, Avery. You have to earn it by your actions. I stopped to think for a couple of heartbeats. I almost didn't take the berth because of the Agamemnon's reputation on the docks, but once I was here, my main goal was pretty simple. Make money. He cocked his head to one side. Isn't that rather cold, Skipper? Make money. Maybe, 
and shrugged. But it's why we're out here. That's why the ship exists. We're all out here because we make money. If we didn't make a living at it, we couldn't do it. So why the bet, Skipper? Now I confess that that was a spur-of-the-moment opportunity. Mr. Hill had some rather pointed comments to make about the ship's performance, and I put him in the position of having to put up or shut up. You expected him to win, then? I shook my head. Remember the first task I set you, the menus? He looked surprised, but nodded. Yes, why? Avery, I'm pretty good with data, but I doubt that even I could have come up with that menu that fast or accurately. I had no idea if Mr. Hill could pick either, but I know I can. I've done it before, and while I'm no expert at it, I'm not completely lost. By giving you both something to focus on, I figured I'd learn a lot about the both of you. Mr. Wyatt smirked. And to make money along the way? Well, I had to pick one can, so I was pretty sure we'd make some. The priority to Jet was probably a mistake. I grimaced. I got greedy, but I learned a lesson. I looked over at him. But I didn't really have anything to lose in making the bet, did I? He considered that. I guess not, Skipper. He wasn't finished, though. I could see it in his face. Then why all this? He waved his hand at the mess deck. You spent money to replace the table. Added the screen. The co-op? Oh, the table was cheap, Avery, and I needed to make a statement. We're all in the same boat, literally, as it happens. We're all one crew. Those two tiny tables were a problem because there wasn't room for all of us. Compared to the value I got for it, that table was a bargain. I looked over at the screen. I didn't buy that. I would have, but the chief had it in parts storage. I'm not sure why or how, but it's a nice unit, and it's made a big difference. He finished his cleanup and folded the side towel into the rack. Avery, why don't you take the day off? He looked startled. Really? Why not? Take Gwen out to dinner or something. I can handle it, and you haven't really had a full day off in months. He looked around the galley and eyed the chrono on the bulkhead. Let me fix lunch. Gwen won't be up until then anyway. If you'd handle dinner and breakfast, mess, Skipper, that would give us a nice night out. We can't stay out too late. She's got the day watch in the morning, but I wouldn't mind sleeping in. I grinned at him. You drive a hard bargain, Mr. Wyatt, but you win. He laughed. Well, then, I need to make a run down to the O-1 deck and see about our replenishment order. They're supposed to have good fish here, and I'd like to stock up on some while we've got a chance. I'll go with you. I want to see about getting some cushions for that bench in the cabin. I slotted my cup in the cleaner. Meet you at the lock in five ticks. Sounds good, Skipper. I scampered up to my cabin and did a rough measurement of the bench. I could have asked the chief for tape measure, but I figured that the unit was probably standard and the chandlery would have something that was likewise standard. I took the chance to visit the head and, on my way back through, paused at the door from the sleeping cabin to survey. I squinted my eyes and tried to imagine what Freddy would do in the space. Freddy was always at home in the cabin on the tinker. When she took over from Rosset, the cabin took on a new life. It was still very businesslike when it needed to be, but it was also her home in a very real sense. We'd spent many afternoons and evenings having informal gatherings of her command staff in the cabin. I really did miss those. The ticks were ticking, so I gave up on the reverie and went to meet Mr. Wyatt at the lock. We separated at the chandlery. He headed for the replenishment office, and I headed back to fittings and furnishings. As I suspected, they had a variety of standard seat cushions and pillows with clever Velcro tags on them. In a ship underway, it wasn't a terribly good idea to have things just laying around loose. On the other hand, low-mass items like pillows and cushions didn't need a lot of persuasion to keep them in place. I suspected if the ship took enough of a hit that the Velcro wouldn't hold them, then we'd have much more serious problems than flying foam. 
I arranged with the staff to get the cushions upholstered in a rich blue fabric and have them delivered to the ship before we sailed. While I was finishing up, Mr. Wyatt joined me, and when I was done, motioned me over to the mess deck section. They had the twin to our mess deck table over there in the showroom. Look at the benches, Captain. The long benches down each side of the table gave a lot of flexibility in seating by allowing people to sit as close or as far from each other as space and disposition allowed. I remembered similar designs in picnic tables at the parks on Neris and Port Newmar. What they didn't have was a back or padding on the seats. For the stand or so we spent sitting there during mass, it wasn't an issue, but sitting for an extended time, like during a movie, was something less than comfortable. These benches had a pad that ran the full length of each bench and seemed to be held on with spring clips. They weren't very thick, but Mr. Wyatt and I both gave them the butt test and the high-density foam added just enough padding to take the hardness off the bench. We grinned at each other and went in search of chandlery staff to get a set added to our replenishment order. The staff member was happy to take our order and even offered several options for covers. We chose a nice green color with darker piping on the seams and a smooth vinyl fabric that could be wiped down with a sponge. Mr. Wyatt was grinning like a kid in a candy store as we headed out of the store through the furnishings department. We were almost out when a display beside the door caught my eye and I detoured to it without even thinking. Mr. Wyatt observed me quizzically as I stopped and looked at the conversational grouping consisting of a pair of two-seat sofas with a steel-trimmed wood inlaid table between them. It took me back to Naris, to the apartment I'd grown up in with my mother. It was scaled down a bit. Ours had been full-sized couches, and these were a lot shorter. But they were nearly the same style. I sat on one, and my body just relaxed into it. I had to stop myself from putting my feet on the edge of the table, something that others hadn't done, judging from the faint scuff marks I saw there. Do you think this would look good in my cabin, Mr. Wyatt? He eyed it dubiously. I don't know, Skipper. Where would you put it? I considered the question, but realized I already knew the answer. Pull the conference table and put it there. The only time I've ever used that table was when we had the crew of the voice aboard. We used the mess deck for crew meetings. And if we need to meet in my cabin, then this would be a lot more comfortable than those plastic chairs. He took a seat across from me, and I grinned when I saw him fight the urge to put his feet up as well. He looked around appraisingly and ran a hand across the seat beside him. Nice. He looked over at me with a shrug. Can we afford it? An info sheet was taped to the table, and I leaned over to read the specs. I winced a little at the price, but remembered that I'd be saving in rent by not paying for the crew quarters on Diurnia. Let's go find that helpful staff fellow and see what we can do. In the end, even with the disposition of the old fixtures, the hit to my wallet was less than I paid for rent. Mr. Wyatt seemed surprised. You're not charging the ship, Skipper? It's a fixture, after all. I considered it. No, Avery, if I charge the ship, then it comes out of the profits, which has an effect on the crew shares. I'll pay for this myself. I grinned. I rather expect I'll get my use out of it. He looked dubious, but wisely didn't argue. Chapter 51, Dre Orbital, 2372, June 24th. It really doesn't pay to get too complacent. I'd learned that lesson when I was young, and I relearned it every so often. My new furniture had been delivered, and after a few bad moments, the shipfitters had removed the old conference table and installed the new. 
Placement was critical because once locked down, they couldn't be moved without significant use of cutting tools and torches. In the end, I'd arranged it so that the sofas were perpendicular to the port, letting me lounge back sideways and stare out the windows to my heart's content. It wasn't actually long enough to stretch out on, but it was certainly more comfortable than any other seat on the ship. The cushions for the bench had been delivered as well, and I spent a pleasant half a stand laying them out and sticking them down before stretching out on them to see how they worked. Miss Thomas relieved the watch at 1800, and I spent a quiet evening at the local pub on Dray, enjoying the quiet ambience, some shore food, and a single gin and tonic. While I was there, several shoals of spacers wafted in and out, and I remembered the old times and past occasions. In the end, it got too lonely for me, so I paid the tab and headed back to the ship. It felt strange, in a way. I'd always had shipmates to go ashore with, but I'd long known that the captain didn't go ashore with the crew. Sometimes for a special event, like a getting-underway party or some other occasion, but it wasn't one of those let's-go-grab-a-drink relationships. I knew then why one often saw captains dining with captains and made a note to see who was in port when I got back to Diurnia. In the meantime, I headed back to the ship and my bunk. I didn't go back on duty until 1800, and I was looking forward to the last good chance for sleep before we got underway. Too bad I didn't get it. At 0500, Miss Thomas woke me. Skipper. She was standing in the door of the sleeping cabin. She hadn't turned on a light, but the room behind her was brightly lighted as always by the reflected light from the skin of the orbital. I could see her outlined in the doorway. Yes, Miss Thomas. I blinked and tried to focus. Orbital security is here. They'd like to speak with you about Mr. Paul. Give him a cup of coffee, Miss Thomas. I'll be right down. She disappeared from my door, and I made a beeline for the head. Whatever it was, it couldn't be good news. My groggy brain caught up with the watch rotation, and I realized that Mr. Paul was supposed to be relieving the watch in the next stand. In less than five ticks, I met them at the mess deck. The two orbital security officers were not sipping coffee, but were standing uncomfortably, looking around the mess deck. They turned when I entered, and the taller of the two shook my hand. I'm Officer Laura Church. This is my partner, Officer Martha Holloway. Captain Ishmael Wong, officers, you have one of mine. We think so, Captain. Church nodded to Holloway, who held up a tablet with the picture of a rather badly bruised face. Is he yours? It could be. Mr. Paul, second mate. I stepped back from the image. We found him under a ladder in one of the stairwells about three stands ago. No ID. Civvy's pretty much destroyed. He went right into the can when we got him to medical. They popped the lid a little while ago. No serious injuries, not counting the broken leg. They looked at each other. And he seems to be a bit delusional, Captain. Pirates? They seem startled. How did you know? It's Mr. Paul. He was unconscious when we got him. He's still pretty much sedated from the initial treatment. When they popped the lid, he was able to give his name and ship, and we came over to check out his story. Is he in any criminal trouble, officers? They shook their heads. We just wanted to make sure he was who he said he was. You can go see him. He won't be leaving medical for a while. Miss Thomas, it looks like you'll have the watch for a little longer. No problem, Skipper. I was just going to sleep anyway. She grinned. Save me some breakfast, Mr. Wyatt. I'll be back as soon as I can. The officers escorted me to medical. We went up to the main medical station on the five deck, the one reserved for serious cases that the first aid station down on O-1 couldn't handle. I braced myself. Two medicos intercepted us as we entered, and the officers excused themselves. Good luck, Captain. We've got to finish the reports on this, so we'll leave you here. Thank you, Officer Church, Officer Holloway, 
They nodded and left. The medicos took over. They introduced themselves, but I missed their names. He's in pretty rough-looking shape, Captain. It looks like he took quite a good beating and was then rolled down the ladder. Is he conscious? They looked at each other. So-so, Captain. He's pretty heavily sedated, but he comes to now and again and mumbles something about pirates before going back out. That's not unusual for Mr. Paul. They looked at each other again before stepping back and ushering me into a curtained cubicle with an autodoc pod in it. The bottom half was closed, covering him from the hips down, but his bare chest looked, not too surprisingly, like he had been rolled down a flight of stairs. His face wasn't much better. One eye was swollen almost shut, and his upper lip was about twice normal size. He appeared to be asleep. Yeah, that's him, William Paul, second mate, Agamemnon. They nodded, and one made an entry on the tablet. Will you be in port long, Captain? We were going to leave tomorrow. You tell me. They looked at each other again, and I was beginning to wonder if there was some sort of medical mind meld in action, but the shorter one answered. He won't be able to travel for at least two days, probably three. By then he'll be able to move around on his own. The swelling should be gone, and some of the bruising will look pretty spectacular, but not dangerous. The other one added, his left leg will be in a cast from mid-thigh to toe. He won't be walking on it for at least three weeks, even with a quick knit. I took a deep breath and let it out slowly. Will he be fit for duty? They looked at each other one more time before the taller one answered. Light duty. Anything he can do sitting down. Well, his job involves a lot of sitting, so that shouldn't be a problem. Another thought occurred to me. Medications. Anything that will impair his judgment. They shrugged in unison. For the next couple of days, I wouldn't let him drive, Captain. But after that, nothing worse than an over-the-counter analgesic. Well, okay, then. Agamemnon is at Dock 12. We can delay a couple of days until you get him back to us. Let us know if he needs anything. On the way back to the ship, I wondered what effect the cast would have on his ability to get up and down the ladders. It was just past 0600 when I got back aboard, and I was pleased to see Mr. Ricks on the brow. Good morning, Mr. Ricks. Looks like you'll be standing watch with somebody else for a bit. How is he, Skipper? I gave a little shrug. He was out cold when I saw him. He looks pretty bad, but the medics say he'll be back with us in two or three days. So we'll wait for him, sir? It'll probably be faster than trying to hire a new second mate, Mr. Ricks. Would you do that, Skipper? If he were going to be laid up for an extended period, we'd have to, Mr. Ricks. As it is, I think we'll be okay to give him a couple of days to get back aboard. I went on into the mess deck where Mr. Wyatt had breakfast underway. I grabbed coffee and food as I gave the assembled company the same news. As I settled to the table, I turned to Chief Gearhart and Mr. Wyatt. Can you two flip a coin? Loser gets to be second section OD for a couple days. They looked at each other and spoke in unison. I'll do it. <laughs> we all laughed. The chief added, Engineering is ready to go. I don't really have that much to do at the moment, Avery. It's no hardship on me. They shrugged. Okay, chief, but I don't mind. Thank you both. Mr. Wyatt may get his chance at OD once we get underway. He looked concerned at that. Skipper? He'll be ambulatory and aboard. I have no idea what kind of shape he'll be in and whether or not he'll be able to take a deck watch. I don't want to sit here at the dock if he could be healing up on the way. Miss Thomas and I can go watch and watch for a short time, if we need to. But it would work a lot better if you could hold the bridge watch down. But I'm not qualified, Skipper. You're a senior officer of the ship, Mr. Wyatt. Any boot third is qualified. I'm pretty sure you can hold down bridge watch for a few days. I realized that my fork was scraping plate, and I stopped trying to eat the china. We can split the galley duty up, so you're not stuck doing both, and it may not be necessary. I'm just laying in contingency plans. What about me, Captain? 
Chief Gerhardt threw her hat into the ring. You want to do bridge watch, Chief? I could in a pinch. I've got a full engineering console up there so I can keep track of the girls while we're underway. The only problem would be if I needed to leave the bridge to physically check something. It wouldn't be any worse than if I went wrong in the middle of the night when I'm asleep. She shrugged. These systems are pretty reliable so long as you keep up with the maintenance. And I do. Well, that's a good point, Chief. Thank you. Let me get back to you on that. It's good to know we've got some options. Now, if we can just get him back aboard. I slotted my dirty dishes into the cleaner while Chief Gearhart relieved Miss Thomas on watch. The ratings followed my lead, and we left the three of them with their heads together. I smiled inwardly and did what any good captain should do. I went to my cabin and wrote up the report while my command staff solved the problems of making it all work. I managed to get the report done and review the overnight logs before the lunch mess. There was still an issue with the delivery dates on the cans, but we'd learned a lesson and picked dates that were well out. The key would be the jump. We could make up the time if we were able to jump a bit closer. I wasn't willing to shave the safety margins, but luck did fall in our favor occasionally. It behooved us to be ready to take advantage of it when it did. Mr. Ricks joined us at lunch, but it was a reduced company as both Mr. Schubert and Mr. Hill had gone up to the flea market. With the extra days of trading opportunity, they were making arrangements to keep their booth and taking advantage of the extra time to both sell and buy. Conversation was desultory in spite of that. I had a feeling that my senior officers were hatching something. It was nothing I could put my finger on, just the way they kept shooting little knowing glances at each other. I didn't know if I should be concerned or relieved. After lunch was secured, I went up to medical to check on Mr. Paul. The medics nodded me through, and I found him conscious, if not exactly lucid. Hello, Mr. Paul. You seem a bit under the weather. Pirates, Skipper. They're everywhere. So it would seem, Mr. Paul. I refrained from asking how he felt. I had a pretty good idea. Is there anything you need from the ship? Pants, Captain. They took my pants. Yes, Mr. Paul. They'll give them back when you're ready to wear them again. Oh, good. You rest, Mr. Paul. Get well. We're holding the ship for you, so you need to heal quickly. That seemed to get through to a part of him that might have been tracking better. I wondered if you'd replace me, Captain. Who would handle pirate watch, Mr. Paul? I've been training Mr. Rick, Skipper. He could do it in a pinch. I grinned at him. I fear he lacks your insight and experience, Mr. Paul. He smiled but fell asleep again before replying. The medico on duty smiled and nodded as I left. There wasn't anything we could do but wait, and given that I'd have the midwatch, I thought I'd just as soon wait in my bunk. Thanks for listening to Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is the Mason's Apron and is used with permission of the artist J.F. Archer. Find this and other works by J.F. Archer at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com.